We are talking today with Jennifer, who is a survivor leader from the North Carolina Coalition Against Human Trafficking Survivors Network. The network acts as a liaison and connects survivor leaders with organizations seeking guidance or training regarding best practices for working with trafficking survivors. She was sex trafficked by her father when she was a teenager. Now, unbeknownst to both of us, our paths initially crossed when we both attended a webinar about familial trafficking. And it was an, a powerful webinar. Uh, it motivated me to write a bulletin about human trafficking by families, which is available at the School of Government website. And Jennifer read that, and then she reached out to me and we talked. Jennifer, why was that webinar and this bulletin important to you? Oh my goodness. Um... I mean, it just confirmed my experience. It um, shed light on exactly what what happened to me, and it it um, it explained it so perfectly in ways that really I've been trying to explain and understand for years. And you know, within one hour of the webinar, within one sitting of reading your article, it was just like, oh my goodness like, there it is. That's my story. And so I, I've always had pieces of my story. And, um, but, but I've never been able to word it exactly like it's been worded. And it, it is absolutely my story. So it was confirmation, huge confirmation. Having the words to name our experiences is just really important to accurately describe what we experienced, no matter what the experience was. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I was being trafficked when trafficking wasn't even a word. Yeah. Right. Well, and it, it wasn't named by legislation here in the United States until 2000 with the uh, Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So we literally didn't have a vocabulary or a law that would have addressed the issue as it happened to you when it happened to you. Right. Which was back in the mid 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. It would be easier for all of us to understand trafficking if the traffickers and the sex buyers were 100% Hollywood villains. I mean, that, that they, they're easily identifiable as evil or mean or manipulative. They look that way. That would be easier for us. But that wasn't the case with your father and perhaps not with the sex buyers either in your experience. Um, what enabled your father to be overlooked as a trafficker and operate in plain sight. It's not like you were hidden away, was it? No, I wasn't hidden away at all. Um, I mean, he was a successful businessman. He was extremely handsome. Um, he had women swarming around him all the time. Um, you know, he was middle, maybe middle, upper class a bit. And to the outside world, it just, it looked like a normal family, absolutely. But inside, it was full of lots of drugs and alcohol. Um, he definitely used alcohol and drugs as a way to control me and uh, keep me submitted. And the grooming process is a big deal in my story. And that started early on. I mean, very, very early. He also, he had a, a temper. He had a side to him that he didn't show to other people, but one-on-one -on -one I got to see it. So he had a very violent temper. So that taught me, um, you know, this is not someone I can go up against or question. 
defend myself in any way. So if I wanted a place to live, if I wanted to stay in his home, then I had to fall in line with whatever he wanted. And um, he also he also had me work as a waitress in, in a, a local restaurant. And that was where his buyers would come in. And, you know, basically I was put on stage, if you will. And that's, that's what being a waitress was, right? So like to the outside world, I looked like a waitress. But what was to the, the world of being trafficked by my dad, what that looked like was, you know, men, come on in, check out this waitress over there. And, you know, if you want to take her home, have at it. So, but yeah, these things are very hidden. They're very hidden. And so they are hard to detect. Unless someone can recognize the signs, you know, and enough to be able to even start to ask, but most people just don't even understand this is happening. Yeah. Or we make excuses for uh, uh, an act, assuming it's an isolated act rather than a pattern of behavior. I mean, what you're describing is what traffickers use, force, fraud, or coercion to, mm -hmm. to manipulate their victims. So it sounds like your dad's temper was a threat. So mm -hmm. the yeah. threat of force controlled you, manipulation. He had you abusing drugs and alcohol to keep you under control. And then coercion. He presented very nicely to the public, it sounds like, in this restaurant that he owned. And that was not the case at home. Nope. Not the case at home. He always reminded me who was in control and he took advantage of my need as a child to have a place to live and to be able to eat and sleep at night and maybe go to school if I wasn't being used all night long. So, you know, these are natural needs that a child has to have a place to live, to eat and to sleep. And with parents that traffic their children, those very needs are exactly what gets exploited. It is the actual role of being a parent that is the tool of control, isn't That's it? Right. Yeah. Well, what happened when you stopped being trafficked? Um, about when did that happen in your life? And then uh, how did you begin to heal from this incredible experience? Yeah, it's, I'm still healing from it. And I'm 35 plus years out. And in fact, the older I get, um, the more things are making sense. And there's, there's so many layers to this, you know, um, it, as children, when this is being done to us, we have to stuff it down, we have to dissociate, we have to separate from our, our own bodies and our minds essentially have to hang out up on the ceiling for a while, you know, while it's happening. So we literally separate from the experience and ourselves and our identities. And we have no choice but to do that in order to survive or we would not survive. It's that simple. And so then we go into the world and to, we're trying to figure out how to be an adult, yet we're not even connected to ourselves and what just happened to us. And so it's very difficult. So it takes a lot of help. We need a lot of help. We need a lot of intervention. We need a lot of comfort, um, acceptance, love, support. I mean, our needs as adults are just as huge as, as they are as children. And so 
um, you know, the most important needs. Let's just start with like having a place to live. So my trafficking took place starting at age 14 and he groomed me in a lot of ways up until that point. So from age 14 to almost 20 years old, off and on it happened. So why did it end? Simply because I aged out. Um, the men and my dad, they preferred teenagers. So that's why it ended. And, um, and so then he dropped me off in another state um, and I was homeless and I stayed with my sister and she has a separate story, total different story than mine, um, but she was in another state. And so I stayed with her. And, and then at that point, I mean, here I was like almost 20 years old and I had no idea how to drive a car. I didn't understand about work when my dad was trafficking me on stage as a waitress. I never got paid for that ever. I didn't understand then that you're supposed to have, you actually work for paychecks. I had no clue about that. And um, so I didn't know, I didn't understand about, you know, getting a job and paychecks and paying bills. And, you know, you can rent a room until you get an apartment in college, all this I had no clue no life skills. And that's also why he got rid of me because he didn't want the job of teaching me all that either. So, cause that was just too much of a hassle. He flat out did not want to be a parent, but if he was going to have to be a parent, you know, there was, there was a way that he figured he could use me for his benefit. So now I'm homeless, sleeping on the couch at my sister's. What do I do? Well, I was very suicidal to say the least because I didn't know what to do with myself. And I was sitting on so much trauma, I had no idea what I'd even really come out of. And so um, by the grace of God alone, I was led into 12-step recovery. And it was there that they told me I never had to drink or do drugs again. And I'm like, what? I don't have to? And because I was forced to. I mean, it was, there was no, I had no choice about that. When they said that to me, I was thrilled. I was like, wow, that's great. So I put it down and, and they, and then they went on to teach me how to drive a car. They taught me, what do I do with these things called paychecks? Um, I can rent a room. I mean, everything that a young adult is prepared to take on as an adult, they taught me. So 12-step recovery became my family. And without them, I would not have made it. So it's a kind of a miracle story how that even happened, but that's a, that's a side note. But the bottom line is it saved my life. And, um, and there's so many 12-step programs and I've needed more than one to deal with all the various issues that coming out of this kind, kind of trauma entails. And then eventually through the 12 step programs, um, I was eventually led to my relationship with Jesus Christ. So the 12 step programs in my story was a stepping stone for that ultimate relationship, which is where my ultimate healing comes from. As you describe your experience um, first, um, I, I have to say your resilience is awesome. 
in the true sense of the word that you were able to survive that because you were you were figuring out so much as your body was detoxing from the substance abuse that he forced you into but you were trying to to navigate a world that you'd barely been exposed to oh yeah i had no clue i i mean it was like full-on shock city <laughs> i mean i was like whoa what's this big world out here i don't know what to do with that or myself and so that's why i was so suicidal but luckily i mean i was i was 19 again almost 20 when i got into 12-step recovery and the adults they they recognized right away i had no clue on you know what i'm supposed to do now that i put down the substances and um, so really they just jumped in and did their job and they did it great. And eventually I was able to, um, at some point I got married, um, I had a child and I went on to go to college and I graduated from college with honors and that's in 2006. And, and I, I loved college. I loved it so much that I dragged it out a, a couple extra years. Like I didn't even want to stop. Because see, I missed so much of high school because of what was happening to me. And when I when I did show up, I was sleeping on the on the desk. I was I was so dissociated and traumatized, I couldn't even concentrate on you know the, what the teachers were talking about. Homework? How do I turn in homework when I'm not even comprehending what's being taught in school? Number one. Number two, I don't have anyone at home helping me with the homework high school was impossible for me to get through. A lot, of, a lot of E's and F's and C's and absences. I mean, how sad is that? And here I find out in college that I love it and that I love to learn and that I'm good at it and I'm skilled. See, these are all the things that, while we're being trafficked as kids by, in, by whoever's trafficking us, these are the things that where most people take for granted, we miss out on. But again, by the grace of God, that was restored to me. So what was stolen from me then, I got back through my college degree. Yeah. Well, what a discovery it must have been the day that you realized you're smart. Yeah. I was like, wow. And how much I love it. I didn't, I didn't go through it because I had to, or I was trying to look good or, you know, become somebody. No, I loved it. I enjoyed it my joy yeah that's wonderful I bet you added a lot to the classrooms you were in as well but you know something else that your life story really drives home is the fact that um, when communities are designing systems for helping survivors of human trafficking they really have to understand it's not a one and done thing you just don't pick a person up and put them in a different place and then they're fine there's lots of relearning, retooling that has to happen in addition to the healing. Well, first of all, the only reason that I could go on and, and do what I did do, you know, raise a child, go to college, um, work, you know, the things that I did do, first I had to physically get away from, you know, my family. And, and that is what enabled me to move on. And I mean, I moved 2000 miles away. I was far away. And, but it was, but I wasn't really ready to do the deep emotional work 
until less than a few years ago. But then thank God there's a program for that too. So I've, I've got about two years of recovery and another program dealing with, you know, the, the deepest emotional traumas that happened to me, but that's how gracious God is. He didn't, he, he brought me to that when he, when I was ready, cause I wasn't ready. So I, when I say I'm still healing, that is the truth. I am still healing, but my life is created in a, in a way where I can, you know, my daughter has grown, she's gone. Um, unfortunately I'm not married, <laughs> but the truth is that does give me the time and the space to heal. And I've got a safe place to live. I live in a, a wonderful little town. I, I've got wonderful friends at church. You know, so that's another critical piece too. If we are to heal, we have to have all those things in place. We have to have a good solid support system. So yeah, just because just we escape doesn't mean suddenly we're fine. <laughs> yeah, we got well, a long way to go. It's lifelong, in fact, I'm convinced to heal from this. It's lifelong. Oh yeah, well, it's, it's like having a part-time job, a very demanding part-time job. Um, the whole time that you're in a healing process, right? You don't have full attention to the rest of your life, but now that you've got all the pieces in the place, watch out world, Jennifer's gonna make some change happen in her own life and uh, in our community's lives. So that, that's fantastic. Absolutely. Our audience here today are elected officials in cities and counties and they're in decision-making positions and they are influencing influencers in our communities. Is there anything you'd like to tell them about how you want them to think about trafficking or victims of trafficking? Any advice you wanna give them? Yeah, I mean, it's probably quite a bit I could say on that, but for the sake of time, I'll try to simplify this. Um, you know, first of all, kudos to all the anti-trafficking organizations out there um, since 2000 that have just made great progress in recognizing how big and real trafficking is worldwide and our own nation into our neighborhoods, our communities. Um, I'm very impressed with all the organizations, how well they have done, how far they have come, and they're not giving up, they're not letting up. You know, more and more resources continue to come out, which is just fabulous. I do see a bit of a gap though when it comes to familial trafficking. So I, and I understand why, because it's the hardest one to comprehend, right? Like how can a mother, a father, an uncle, a grandfather, an older brother, how can they do this to a, a child, a little girl, a little boy, member of the family, their own daughter, their own son? My request is that entire society just open your mind it's hard to hear, it's hard to understand, but please be open to learning more about it. And, and, and how best to do that? By listening to the survivors. So that's where it starts, awareness. Be open-minded, listen, hear us out, and be willing to hear the stories. And then what can be done about it? My goodness, well, the resources we need are just, you know, massive. My, in my research and, and what's worked for me what I recommend, first of all, most important, critical for, for kids coming out of this, and when I say kids, I'm including young adults, 
um, because we don't mature. <laughs> while we're have while this is happening to us as, as kids, we are not maturing. What we need is a safe place to land, number one. And so where I'm coming from, what, what I believe we need is a two-year residential, at least two, I mean, two years, okay, two years at the most, to just to, to stop, land, breathe, reset, debrief from what we just came out of, and that requires a lot of talking. That's what we need the most, is to be heard and believed. And so um, first we just gotta get safe. We, we are not capable of working, functioning. I mean, really we're not. And if we do, we're not gonna do it at our best. Of course, the right, the right kind of um, therapy, trauma-informed. I've been blessed to have an excellent therapist who is not shocked by my memories when I, and I have to tell the details. That's a huge part of my healing. And, I, and, and that has to be done in the right way with the right person. And so trauma-informed therapists, because I have found that even a lot of therapists can't, they don't understand this. So shelter, the right shelter long-term with no high expectations. We need to be able to rest, relax. It, takes, it can take months for our nervous system just to calm down. And then once we're calmed down and we begin to make sense of what happened to us, then we can begin to focus and operate in the moment you know, with what task is right at hand and concentrate fully. So that, and, um, and then eventually transition in the residential uh, from lots of rest, relaxation, debriefing, trauma-informed counseling, get our nutrition. We're not, we're, we're nutritionally deprived as well when we come out of this, so we gotta get our nutrition back on because our brains work better, right? With good nutrients, but that takes time. See, all this takes time. And then, um, and then slowly transition us into life skills training. Um, you know, why do you work? How do you work? And what are some goals? And let's get you some good skills on board. So that again, takes time. So then slowly transition into either renting a room, you know, or an affordable apartment. So all this takes time. And then we have a chance to actually launch out into the world and succeed. If it wasn't for the intervention of 12-step programs and me being willing to do whatever they told me to do, because I was already trained to do whatever I was told to do, that worked well for me in that scenario. What I'm struck with right now is just, if you have never been physically and emotionally safe, how long it will take your body to reset and trust it once you're removed from the dangerous situation. And Right. How gently we need to navigate that phase for anyone. Yeah, because people on the outside, they, you know, that who haven't been traumatized, you know, they just get up, go to work, they do life like it's so easy. We've got the baggage of these memories following us around. We get triggered easily. It's at the cellular level. So one day we might think we're doing okay, but then a you know, a trigger happens, it can be anything. And then we're regress, we're kind of right back there. So it takes a while to develop skills to navigate the triggers that, that are inevitable. And yeah, while we're healing, so. Well, that's really important advice to share. And I appreciate you sharing both that advice and your story with this audience. Um, it's quite a gift to all of us. So thank you for that. 
as we wrap this up, is there anything else you want to convey? Yeah, most critical. Um, it's important to learn uh, when learning about familial trafficking and the reality of it. Um, begin to understand what are the signs? What are the signs? How can you tell if someone's being trafficked by their parents or a parent? Um, so there's lots of signs, you know, to look for with that. And, um, and then intervene. What, you know, come up with an intervention strategy of like what to do when it's detective. You know, if you start asking the right questions to the child and you find out they're being trafficked, there's gotta be like a safety plan if you will, kind of like people with um, that come from domestic violence, you know, they have to have a safety plan in order to get out safely. So we need the same thing, absolutely the same thing. So then intervention strategies, um, preventing it. I'm not so sure about prevention, honestly, because we're born into this and it's generational in one way or another. Um, key points is identifying it, have a safety plan, a rescue strategy in place, and a safe place for a child to be able to go. Also, please realize that this is happening in neighborhoods, in your neighborhood. This is everywhere. This is the slave next door. It really is. So don't be blind to it. Um, our children are um, innocent victims. We don't ask for this. We don't even want it. We don't even know what it is. So we have to rely on the adults out there, you know, in the school system, in the churches, the community centers. As children, we rely on them to be able to detect it and do something about it. My goal is to be a voice for the voiceless. You know, now today, I want to be able to say, to say all the things that I wish I could have said back then. And, and I need to speak for those that can't speak now. And so whatever I can do to help, I'm all in, yeah. As am I, each from our different perspective with different kinds of resources. So uh, elected officials know that the School of Government website has a lot of materials for you to peruse and I'm happy to connect you with other resources depending on what your interest might be. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your story. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome, thank you for having me. Thank you again so much, Margaret, for bringing this topic to us today. Thank you to our studio manager, Paul Bonner, for his, his gracious assistance to us. And to our audience, if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please share them with me. My name is Patrice Rossler. I am manager of elected official programs here at the School of Government, and you can reach me by email at p-r-o-e-s-l-e-r at sog.unc.edu.